All right. Um, we all know our next speaker. Um, some of you may not, but this is uh, our senior pastor, Pastor Jordan Sang, back from sabbatical. was that bad, huh? Oh, <laughs> uh, thank, thank you. It's, it's good, good to be home, yeah? Nice to see you all. Uh, I've been gone for a while, um, but I haven't aged a bit. And uh, thank you uh, to everyone who held down the fort uh, in my absence. Um, who, uh, who, wants to, who wants to interview me about the last five months of my life? Who, want, who wants to do that? Who, who wants to interview? Come on up, Mary. Come on up. You thought I was going to let you stay on the floor. I have been gone a while then, yeah. Hi. How are you? All right, there you go. Good. You got you like two or three questions. Go. Go. Let me have my coffee. How many countries did you visit? Uh, how many countries did I visit? We only visited two foreign countries, three foreign countries. Two or three foreign countries. <laughs> so, so not, not too many. Can you name them? <laughs> uh, one, of, one of them, I'm pretty sure, was the UK, yes. and, and then the other one was France. I thought you were in Korea. I'm wrong. Uh, we did not go to Korea while I was gone. Okay. Did you have fun? Yes. <laughs> you, you get one more question. Okay. Did you relax? Did I relax? Yes. <laughs> Wait a minute. Now I get to interview you. So what's God been saying to you recently? Okay, I'm in Nick's group, Nick and Joe, and that's been really nice. We took a break for the summer. Mm -hmm. My husband has been gone a month and a half. He's coming back this week, and it's our 25th wedding anniversary. 25. <laughs> On Thursday. So, Sony and I celebrated our 25th while we were in Britain. Oh, good, good. So, so to the, work on my marriage more, uh -huh. to... Be loving and forgiving and... And work in your marriage. What, what's, what's getting in the way of that? I put him in a box. I label him. You label your yeah, husband? Yeah. Oh, you can't do that. I know. <laughs> I've got to let him out of the box. What sort of things are, what sort of things are you doing to, uh, to move that forward? Okay. I'm in Nick's group. <laughs> Listening more. Be more patient. He's uh -huh. been depressed. And uh -huh. I don't, I'm depressed when he's depressed. And I'm trying to move out of that box. Uh-huh. And how are you trying to bless him in the midst of that? Cooking more for him. The way to a man's heart is his stomach. And Amen. I believe that through, yeah, both husbands. I need to 
cook better stuff more often. Thus, I, I feel heaven opening right now. <laughs> um, and and what, I mean, what can I do to be helpful in this process? I love the prayer that everybody is giving us and giving me. And I went to Sozo for the first time, just uh, the introduction. Uh-huh. And it opened up a lot of areas of need. So I want to come back. Fantastic. Thank you for the interview. You're welcome. Nice to see you. That was all right. Okay, who recognized what I was doing there? Jade? Well, what was I doing there? I was discipling her. I was using uh, our tried and true Blue Water discipleship questions, which I want you to know are now international. We'll go over them a little bit later in, in the sermon. But people ask me, how do, you, how do you evangelize at Blue Water? I was doing this Q&A with young adult leaders from all over Britain. and said, how do you evangelize at Blue Water? And I thought about it a minute. And I said, well, well we just disciple people wherever they're at. Uh, we just start asking questions like, uh, so what's God been doing in your life recently or what's God said to you recently or have you ever heard the voice of the Lord you know if they're a non-believer what's important in your life what's going on that's really important in your life right now and then we'd say well how are you moving on that because moving on it is seeking and development you know that's what discipleship is all about and then what gets in the way of that um, who else are you blessing in the process how can we help we have a set of questions uh, that we go through to disciple people uh, where they're at, believers or non-believers, and we sort of bring them along. And uh, I would say that's our strategy. And then they all wanted our little blue water questions on the cards that we used to hand out. How many of you still have those cards? How many of you use them regularly? How many of you use the questions regularly? Okay. Time for review. One thing I thought about on my sabbatical uh, um, where, uh, you know, I just, I didn't really make any appearance in any churches for um, a number of months. Uh, one thing I thought was I miss having a real job. You know, I, I, miss, uh, I miss sort of having a job out there in the world. I have, a, I have a church job, which is a very strange way to live, really. Um, I miss having uh, a real job, not because I dislike my current job, I, I really love what I do and I love what's going on here, but because in some ways I, I always found it really easy to minister when I was out there in the workaday world. You guys find it easy or hard in, in your heart, in your offices, in your schools, in your homes, or in your neighborhoods? Um, I, I just, you know, I. I always found it easy to be a light in, in the workplace uh, during, you know, back when I had a, a real job, when I wasn't uh, a pastor for, uh, for a living. The, one, of the, one of the first things I did after I was graduating from college is I got a temporary job in a television newsroom. And um, I, uh, I just got it on a lark. I just walked in one day and said, hey, um, I'll be your intern. You know, I'm a smart kid, hire me. And they said, sure, uh, when can you start? So that's how I, I got that job. And uh, they gave me a role on the evening newscasts, sort of late at night. And I was about six weeks into it, and we started having impromptu spiritual therapy sessions after the evening newscasts, 
when everybody was really exhausted. I got to talk to people and pray for people. And I was like 21 years old. I was the youngest, most inexperienced guy in the group. But it was such an incredible high-pressure place, right? And a couple of the anchors started coming to a church with me. It wasn't even my home church. It was just where I was there temporarily. And um, I remember one evening, uh, the anchor for the television newscast had a breakdown. And he walked out of the, uh, the newsroom. This was about two hours before airtime, and he said, Jordan, you're in charge. I trust you. And then he just walked out of the building. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to produce this thing. So I just got busy. I was on the phone to the other reporters. I was doing the satellite downloads, and I had it all produced. And um, I, uh, I tagged, like, the weatherman to go on and be the anchor that night. We had it all set up, and then he walked in with like three minutes to go, and I gave him the scripts, and he said, thanks. I knew I could count on you. And then afterwards, we had a session where he wept, and I prayed. Um, pressure, you know? I mean, the, in the workplace is a place where there's a lot of pressure, so if you move in the peace of the kingdom, I think it's pretty easy to be a light and a relief bringer in, uh, in places like that. I, uh, I uh, needed a job. Um, uh, relatively high-paying job uh, when I got to be 22 years old. So I got a job at a software company, Oracle. You heard of that? Um, because I wanted to earn enough money to buy a ring uh, to, uh, to get married. So it's a little ring, but I did it. She still has it. Um, it's worked out for me. Um, but I was uh, Oracle, you know, it was a tech company in Silicon Valley. Uh, and... Um, I got the job the week that they decided to lay off one-third of their workforce. So, and, and I was a new hire during that time, and everybody was really scared and really depressed. And I thought, well, I'm going to suck at this job, but what a great ministry opportunity. So I did the same thing in there, just started counseling and praying for all of my workmates. And um, sort of word got around, and pretty soon I was counseling uh, the senior VP of my department, like one of the senior VPs of Oracle Corporation, like the second biggest software corporation uh, in the world, because he had nobody else really to talk to. And I was a 22-year-old punk who was really kind of bad at my job. Um, but just because, you know, Jesus is powerful. Um, when I, I had academic jobs for a while because I was in academia, and when I left academia, uh, I got a job at another software company, uh, a web, web company. I didn't really like that job very much. I didn't like the field very much, but it was a good job. And it was a startup company, so there was five or six of us at the beginning, and then the company kind of grew. And I kind of grew with it. I was hired to be a, a software writer, a coder. And, um, and before long, it was clear to me that somebody needed to figure out how to market the product better, so I was doing that. And then I kind of became you know, VP of marketing and business development. And pretty soon I was sort of uh, the senior manager uh, for the company building stuff up. But it was a startup, and it was unclear whether it was going to survive or not. And that's when the tech bubble burst in uh, the early 2000s. And uh, I'm thinking about it in retrospect. I did everything of that company that I do now. I took care of my crew. I developed a mission and a vision. And the way I sold software, I think, was really indicative of who I am. I sold it prophetically. 
this, this is what I mean by that. I didn't know anything about software was my problem. And if you're a VP of marketing and business development for a software company, you should probably know something about software. But I didn't. Um, I just, somebody had to do the job. And so I thought, I'm going to have to market to companies in a creative way. Um, because I can't really go in there and sound like a super knowledgeable techie type. So what I would do is I would get a request for proposal from some corporation that wanted a big database-backed website, and then I would sort of pray over it. I would read about the company. I'd talk to one or two people from the company. And then I would, in, in my mind, define who the company was. I would go in, and I would tell them who they were. This is what your company is really about. I would say. Uh, and I think God really helped me in that. I, I define what your mission really is and then build uh, the website that's going to help that. And then I would sort of tell them our technical solution for who they were. But, but what grabbed me the business was that I would tell them who they were and what they were about and what their mission was in life, which is pretty much what I do here uh, when you think about it. It was about six or seven years after I left that job, and I was, that was in Boston. I was living here in Hawaii, and we were ministering here. One of the, the presidents of the company to whom I sold the website got in touch with me through a, a mutual friend connection and said, the only reason we exist as a company today was because of the proposal you wrote for our website. It redefined our mission and told us who we are, and we have gone back to it you know, 10 or 20 times to remind ourselves. Um, and it's comforting for me to remember my stories. I was lousy at that job, right? I did not know what I was doing. But I just kind of let the Lord work through me. You know, what do I have to bring? I'm pretty good at sort of casting vision and prophesying. And I just sort of use that in my workplace. I would not have wanted that job for very long. But I just always found it fairly easy to be light in some fashion, even in places where I really wasn't the greatest employee, uh, to tell you the truth. Um, I would say that I did full-time ministry probably 16 years before I ever got paid to do full-time ministry. That all the ministry that I did was really anchored in various occupations that I pursued. That was my interface with the world. And I think that's true of most of us. How many of you work a 40-hour-a-week job, 40-plus hours a week? How many of you are in school uh, full-time? I mean, you, sp you spend a lot of time in these places. That's, that's where you live. Uh, so that's really where you should see Jesus and the kingdom of God shine through you. On the other hand, the church has always been a little awkward for me. Uh, the regular world I can handle. Church... Uh, has always weirded me out a little bit. Um, I, uh, I w was a Christian from the time I was a, a little guy. I became a Christian through some babysitters, really blessed our family. Uh, then we moved around a lot, and I was never able to go to any single church for very long. I just sort of got my churching where I could, and um, different times in my family, the, the people I lived with would be very oppositional, antagonistic toward my faith, so it was really hard to get to a church. And I never really absorbed church culture very well. And by the time I really plugged into a church uh, for a significant length of time, I was already in my 20s, and I could not really figure it out. I was missing all of the subtext. I had faith, but I had no culture uh, to go along with it. 
And in a weird way, I think that's kind of been a blessing. Because um, then you end up building a church that makes sense uh, outside of the walls of the church. You know what I'm talking about? I don't, still don't really know how, how churches work all that well, but I know something about how people work, and I know something about how people work at their work, you know, what normal life is really like. And sometimes as Christians, we run the risk of, of making faith, you know, a little bit too sacred to make sense in our offices and in our work spaces. Um, I think that your calling is worked out in your assignment. I think that your calling is worked out in your assignment. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, right now in life, you have an assignment to do something. You have an assignment that you get paid for. You have a job that you go to five days a week or something like that, or maybe your assignment is school. Maybe your assignment is family and neighbors or something like that. That's, that's where you live. That's where you're at a good portion of your life. And so that's where your calling is going to be worked out. That's where your faith is going to be worked out. That's where you're going to love other people in Jesus' name. I had a, a master dream when I was uh, 22 years old. I call them master dreams. Every once in a while in, in life, like years, years go by, but I've had several of these dreams that just sort of stick with me. And, and they've acted to shape my life. I consider them prophetic revelations from the Lord. And when I was 22 years old, I had one that I've never forgotten. It really impressed me. I talked about it uh, with a lot of people at the time. But in this dream, I was in this forum. It looked like a sort of like a lecture hall or a theater. I don't know what it was. But a lot of people were there sort of listening to various speakers. And, and at one point, I got my chance to speak on the stage in this big, this big theater, lecture hall, forum type, type thing. And I won't tell you all the details of the dream, but I interacted with two people in the dream in particular. Uh, the first one was this guy who was really unfit, really out of shape, and, and just very confused and depressed. And he was complaining about how powerless he was, how impotent he was in, in all aspects of life. And in the dream, I said, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. And I, sort of, I was just arguing with him and forcefully making declarations over his life. It's like, stop it. You have everything that you need until he finally sat down and, and accepted it. Uh, and the other character in the dream kept following me around. And it was a, a young woman that we knew whose last name was Wallace and saving you all the interpretive uh, skill. It was, it was a pun. She represented people without walls, people who were wall less. You get it? I think in some ways that dream has defined my life. Mostly what I do is that I convince the church that they have power to do what they need to do. You know, when Sony and I go speak at 20,000 person conferences in Britain, most, most you know, we do a lot of power ministry. Uh, we move with the Holy Spirit. Whatever you need in life, there's power for it if you walk with Jesus, even if you have to do the impossible, even if you have to pull off miracles, even if you have to heal spines that are broken in two places, can be done, can be done. So you should throw yourself into that. The larger thing is I think that we have made a point to build communities that don't have any walls. Uh, I've done that when I've worked for software companies. Uh, we've planted several churches along the way, and very much, I think Blue Water Mission is a community that just lacks walls. 
you know, the separation between what we do on Sunday and what we do during the week is, is sort of paper thin, right? Um, there's no division between sacred and secular. Your ministry is where you live. And where you live is a super interesting place filled with all sorts of interesting people to whom you can speak vision or bring healing, remind them of their purpose, bring restoration. The Greek word for that is sozo. And sozo ministry here. Sometimes the Greek word in Scripture, sozo, is interpreted salvation. But what it really means is restoration of everything. Restoration of your life, restoration of your body, restoration of your freedom. That's what you bring wherever you are. That's what you bring where you live. I've been reading a little bit in the past couple of weeks about what people call the theology of work. You know, just thinking through this idea, like whatever we do as a church, I really want it to be done on the streets and in offices and in classrooms. Um, and so theologians call that a theology of work, bringing Jesus into the workplace. And there's all these complicated discussions about it. And, and I, I, I went through like 12 different articles on 12 different Christian websites last night, and every one of them quoted from Colossians 3, 23 and 24. It's on your program. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And I think that verse has been used like universally to encourage Christians to be really good employees. Um, what, what shocks me though is that it's the only verse that anyone ever quotes. Sometimes you quote from 1 Corinthians 10, but we won't go there. It's like, you know, serve your bosses well. or serve your clients well, and, and that's, that's the Christian thing to do. But I think a true theology of work probably is broader than that. I mean, yeah, you should be a great employee, but more than that, you should be who you are at work. You should remember that when you're at work, when you're in the classroom, you're not just serving the man, you're not just serving the boss, you're not just serving the professor or whatever. I mean, you're serving the Lord. And what is your service to the Lord? It might not be um, developing database-backed websites. It might just be loving the people that are around you, bringing the kingdom, bringing restoration wherever you're at, discipling people where they live. I think that's probably a better theology of work. Um, really, when you think about it, although everybody quotes that one verse from Colossians, I think the whole New Testament... Is, is for workaday people. I think that's one of the revolutions that we see in the transfer from Old Testament to New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have books like Leviticus. How many of you, uh, your favorite book of the Bible is Leviticus? How many of you have read Leviticus? Okay, well, that's not so bad, 50% of us. Uh, that's a book that has all the priestly laws and customs and traditions. It's, it's a book that's written for the Levites, for the, the priests and the temple uh, worshipers uh, in, in the Israelite nation. And the histories and the stories of the Old Testament uh, in, in large part revolve around kings and dynasties and sort of national politics and stuff like that. It's very grand themes. And then you get to the New Testament. 
and it's entirely different. It's all about normal people in normal places. It's about how regular people are going to revolutionize the world. It's not about kings. It's not about priests, per se. It's not about religious leaders. If anything, in the New Testament, the religious leaders tend to get in the way and gum up the works, right, in the Jesus stories. And it's that way from the very beginning. Uh, you know, I have some verses on your program from Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But uh, that's at the opening of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But here's how it's set up. A few verses before, uh, you get a description of the people to whom Jesus is preaching. Jesus went throughout Galilee. Okay, so what that means is uh, Jesus was hanging out in the Louisiana bayou, right? So, Hicksville, you know, people spoke with a really weird accent. Um, I could make jokes about different areas on the island, but I'm too smart for that. He was, he was in the backwater of all backwaters, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. Okay, so in other words, it's like Jesus was hanging out in the bayou, and then he did all these amazing things, and Mexico got wind of it. Which if you're an American, is like, wait a minute, that's not what I expected to hear. But that's how the, that's how the chronicle unfolds. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, uh, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. Okay, so this is the crowd. These are the people that are surrounding Jesus. Hicks, dirty foreigners, and people who are in rough shape. That's the picture of, of Jesus' church. Look around. How are we doing? Yeah. Uh, large crowds from Galilee, the bayou, the Decapolis, which was foreign territory, not proper Jewish religious people, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down, <clears throat> and then he gave the Sermon on the Mount. And he said to them, you are the salt of the earth, which must have just been a, a stunning statement for him to make to them. You guys are it, right? If I'm a spiritual leader at all, you are the guys, you're my team. And how must that have sounded to them? Like, wait, wait, wait a minute. We're not even sure how to spell the word Bible. And um, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Like you guys, the workaday people, you are the salt of the earth, and if you don't do your job, it's not going to go well for you. How must that have sounded to them, right? No, 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 no. We're not the salt of the earth. The priests are the salt of the earth. They're the vanguard. I mean, the religious people. No, no, no. It's you guys, where you live and how you live, that, that do the work. You are the light of the world. I always just sort of up in the ante here. You not only bring flavor, but you illuminate everything. You are the guys that show reality to the world. A, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Whatever Jesus thinks that great humans should be, it's regular people that are supposed to be it. You know? He went to the people in, in their workplaces, in their dirtiness, wherever they were, even though, you know, they weren't ascribing to faith really, really well. And he said, all right, we're going to do this thing. We actually are going to illuminate the entire world. And that's how it started. That was a huge part of the Jesus revolution. If you can't do it where you live, then we're not going to pull this off, he said. That was his theology of work. But, but really, I think it's more about being who you are. Are you Jesus people where you work? Are you Jesus people where you study? Are you Jesus people where you live? Are you Jesus people where you play with your kids at the park? And if not, then you're failing to be salty and you're hiding your light under a bushel. First message of the first grand sermon that Jesus gives in the gospel. And I just find that very motivating. I actually really, really like that. You know, not, not particularly because I've never really, even now, felt terribly comfortable as a church person. <laughs> Maybe you don't either. Maybe you just feel comfortable as a regular person. Can I get an amen? How many of you are uncomfortable right now? How many people are you thinking, I'm not even sure this is a church? Everybody's fanning. Uh, Whenever they introduced me to the crowd uh, when we were ministering in Britain over the last couple of weeks, they would say, and Jordan is laying down his life for Jesus in Hawaii, you know. <laughs> and, and all the Brits would be like, boo, boo. And I'd say, they did that one Sunday, and I stood up and said, uh, today in my sanctuary, the internal temperature is 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Who wants to come minister with me? Silence. Good job, guys. I know it doesn't feel like a great cathedral, but thanks for being here. Uh, the kingdom of God should be hard to hide if you're moving in it. That's what I think. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot on, on my sabbatical. If, if the kingdom of God is what Jesus says it is, then it should be incredibly difficult for us to hide it. It should be incredibly difficult for us to put that light under a bushel if we're just being who we are. And the question is, are we being who we are wherever we happen to live? Uh, when Jesus was sending out his disciples uh, without him, he said, all right, now go. Uh, we're taking over the world, so go out and do it. Uh, get it done. I'm going to be waiting here. Tell me how it goes. Sent them out in Matthew 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So that's a pretty good thing to receive uh, from the Lord. And he's told them, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. God is here and now. That's the message. God is bringing order in the present. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, so just give freely. And if that's true, then it should be fairly difficult to hide it, right? If that's true. If we have a message like, God is present, and the ability to say, here, I will show it to you. Whatever, whatever you're going through, you know. If you're sick, we can, 
try to heal that. If you're, if you're stuck or ignorant, here's a, here's a prophetic revelation. If you're lonely, here's a community that will accept anybody. Uh, if you're poor, here, let me share what we have uh, with you. That, that sort of behavior would be fairly hard to hide, right? That would be salty behavior. If the kingdom of God is like that, then, then I think it should be no problem. Um, I think what we're supposed to do is preach that God is present for whomever we're with. No, God's here with us right now. And then manifest his presence in cool ways, whether it be generosity or acceptance or supernatural miracles. Are you up for that? Does that sound good? Do you think we can pull that off? Or are we too much rabble? Yes and yes. Yeah, I think we're the right people for the job. To pull this off, I think we need passion uh, for where we live and, and where we work. And that's kind of my point uh, for the day. Um, we need to have passion for where we're at. Um, a friend of ours gave us a great illustration. You know, um, when celebrities, like sports athletes, when they do really well on the field, they celebrate, right? When the guy scores the game-winning touchdown, he does a little dance, and he spikes the ball, and then he gets interviewed, and he says, I just, I just like to thank Jesus, right? It's just, it's all about Jesus, that touchdown. And, and what he's really saying there is, uh, you know, by the grace of the Lord, I was able to do good at my job today. I was able to do well at my job today. So thank him for that. At least, I hope that's what he's saying when he does that. Um, I expect to see lots of those moments at the Rio Olympics, right? It's like, I would just like to thank God and definitely not performance-enhancing drugs for my record-breaking performance. You know, it's all, it's all Jesus' grace. Um, you know, it was, it was the power of the Lord that let me do really well at my job. But, but what if we all had that attitude, right, at, at our jobs? So what, what, would, what would a touchdown be for you at, at your work? You know, when, let's say you're a teacher, and when, you know, little chemo finally understands how to add fractions, how about a touchdown dance? Right there. It's like, chemo, yeah, woohoo! You know, dance, let's do the thing. <laughs> or... What, 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 what's your job? Shout it out. Lawyer. lawyer, okay. So what would a touchdown be for a lawyer? A good settlement. Our client got money. Okay, I'll, I will accept that. Because the lawsuit was just. And everybody becomes a lawyer to, to do good in the world, right? I mean, that's why, that's why you want to be a lawyer. And sometimes being a lawyer, I mean, it's very combative. It's hard to do that sometimes and just like to just convince yourself I'm pursuing goodness here as opposed to I'm just fighting an argument, right? But let's say, you know, you're involved in something at the office and it's like, actually, that was a good result. How about a touchdown dance? You know, Elijah, why don't you stand up on the desk and just tear open your shirt <laughs> and spike the clipboard? You're doing it tomorrow. That will be next week's 90-second testimony. Right there. How about that, you know? If you like, you know, Jesus allowed me to do well at my job. Jesus allowed me to accomplish goodness at, at my job today. I mean, that should be the attitude. I'm mean, being a teacher 
year in, year out, probably accomplishes more kingdom stuff than catching touchdowns in the NFL, right? Um, being a lawyer might <laughs> accomplish more. No. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a good lawyer, then you are needed out there. I mean, it's hugely combative. You're walking in dark arenas, so that's no, worth celebrating when you feel like you get a touchdown, whatever that is uh, for you. Go back to the discipleship questions uh, I did at the beginning. What is, you know, how, how do we do evangelism at, at Blue Water? Um, yeah, there's, you, you just share the love, right? There's no way to answer that. But I like this idea of discipling people where they're at, you know? I, I think really it, it boils down to three simple things. Number one, you testify about Jesus. How do you testify about Jesus? Look, we live in postmodern America. Everybody has heard about Jesus. Everybody has heard a convenient explanation of the gospel. The thing is they will reject it automatically. So if you testify, it's good to give a personal testimony. You don't want to explain to them the mechanism of the cross. You simply want to say this, you testify. It's like, yeah, um, I'm, I'm a Jesus follower. Man, it's made a huge difference in my life. and then wait. <laughs> you know, that's a testimony. That's a testimony, some sort of personal experience that somebody can find trustworthy. So everybody say that. Man, it's made a difference in my life. One more time. With conviction. You are trained street preachers. Thank you very much. Give yourselves a hand. But how many of you in the past 12 months have said that to somebody who's not a believer? Okay, I can count you on two hands. Maybe two and a half. Um, or something along those lines, right? Just told somebody, this really makes a difference for me. Somebody with whom you have relationships. Somebody who sees you a lot. Somebody at work or school or in your neighborhood or in your family, where you live. But it's really easy, right? Just, that's all you say. This has just really made a difference for me. Uh, so that's testifying. Number two is discipling, discipleship questions. Uh, I think we have a slide with the discipleship questions on it. Uh, what's God been saying to you recently? Or if they're like a, you know, a non-believer who just wouldn't even say they have an experience with God, say, you know, what's important in your life? I think God is speaking to people's hearts, whether they realize it or not. Lots of things that the Lord has planted in, in your life. And one of the things I really enjoy in life is just meeting non-believers wherever they are and just saying, I just, I just perceive this in you. You know, is that accurate? What do you think about that? Is, is that a passion in your heart? Tell me about that in your life. And that's just a great way to to bring change, you know? Let's reveal the real you, shall we? Let's talk about the real you, because I find you very interesting. Everybody loves that. Everybody loves that attitude. Um, I've done that uh, with great success in, uh, in offices or our classrooms and occasionally airplanes. You ever had those airplane uh, conversations? Um, sometimes I tell stories about airplane conversations. We've been traveling with kids lately, and I notice it happens less often when you're traveling with kids. Uh, but when I travel alone, unless I put up my hoodie, I almost always have a conversation uh, with someone. So I put my hoodie up a lot. <laughs> um, you've heard some of my stories, right? You guys have heard the stripper on the plane story? 
No. I was, I was uh, flying home. Uh, Tony and I had just had our first uh, miscarriage um, of, our, of our first, first child, first pregnancy. And uh, so I was kind of down in the dumps. I hopped on this small commuter plane. I was in Oregon. I was flying home uh, to Boston, where Sonia was, after it happened to be with her. I got on the plane, and this woman walks in, and uh, she had a, her seat reservation was elsewhere, but she sat down next to me and essentially started hitting on me. Uh, and she was uh, a good-looking, a shapely gal who was really dressed uh, sort of provocatively. So we chatted for a bit. It turns out that she's a stripper in, uh, in Utah, <laughs> in, in Salt Lake City. And... Uh, and so I just let her talk for a little bit, and she's like, you know, and all those religious Mormons come in every weekend. You know, it's all such blankety-blank. Um, and uh, so, so there you go, right? There, there's, my, there's my entrance. I said, well, I'm a Jesus follower. Um, and uh, it really made a, a difference uh, for me. Uh, have you ever had any spiritual experiences you know, just sort of started there. Just got her talking about that. We went from a stripper hitting on me to her weeping uh, in the seat in about two and a half minutes. I told you this story, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and she just she just like cried the whole the whole flight. She. The, the connection went through Las Vegas. Basically, she was looking for a cheap a thrill weekend in Las Vegas. It turned out that her mother was dying, and she just wanted to escape, and that was the best way that she could figure out to do it. I'm going to go to Vegas. She's going to hook up with some guy, and she was going to get drunk and just party uh, her grief away. And instead, you know, she left the plane weeping, and I gave her an address for a church that she could go to uh, while she was there, just asking questions. You've heard the mercenary on the plane story, right? You know that one? I'll just tell you the start of it. I walk on to a commuter flight, and there's in the seat next to me, uh, as I approach it, is this huge guy, 280 pounds with a shaved head, and he's reading a magazine titled Combat Handguns. That's how it started. And pretty soon we were talking about, so have you ever rescued any missionaries? He was a, he was a, a paid consultant, a military mercenary consultant. And... Uh, it ended with me in the terminal, kneeling down in front of him, leading him in a prayer of repentance because he was sorry for some things that he had done in that capacity as a gun for hire, as you can imagine. Um, I'm running short on time. Lots of these stories. Um, the guy who confessed alcoholism to me on the plane for the first time, because, you know, you, you're sitting there for five hours. You're going to get to know about him if you start asking a few provocative questions. What are you doing about it? It's question number two. You know, what's important? What's God saying to you recently? And how are you pushing that forward? And you make a lot of people realize that they're not really doing anything about what's important. And now you've started discipling them in a, in a hardcore way. Uh, what's getting in the way? Now you're dealing with people's real problems, right? You're not talking about what's making life hard. You're talking about what's getting in the way of the stuff that would make life good and worthwhile. That's a different question. And then 
Number four, are you bringing anybody along with you? Whom are you influencing? And that might seem like an out of left field sort of question, but I think um, it's a super important question because it schools people to understand you should be loving someone. You should be improving somebody's life. And everybody, believer, non-believer, understands that that's true. Whom are you influencing for the better? And that's a tremendous conversation deepener when you get there. And then finally, sort of the kicker question, how can I help you? If, you know, you've got a two-hour flight, there may not be much that you can do right there. But if it's where you live, if it's in your office, if it's in your school, if it's in your neighborhood, then that question will lead to gold. You'll be able to be a kingdom person, particularly if you're open to doing what's ever needed because freely you receive, so freely give whatever it is wherever you are. And then third, uh, you minister. You testify, you disciple, and then you minister. You apply generous love, if necessary. Or you apply supernatural power, if necessary, wherever you are. You know, you can do it in church, but it's even better when you do it in a cubicle. So what do you say? Let's light up this town. You know, the verse doesn't say you are a church on a hill. The, church, the verse says you are a town on a hill or you are a city on a hill. The whole community should be illuminated uh, by what you do. What do you think? Uh, think about it for just a second. Are you who you are? Are you who you should be where you actually live? I have a feeling... Uh, that in this next season of the church, that the blue water is just going to shake the pillars of, of the community, right? I think, I think this upcoming season, we're really going to make an impact where we live. I think we are, in uncanny ways, all going to become disciplers. We're going to bring people into who they truly are. And that always involves a relationship with God because God is the master designer. Maybe you're here today and you've never really understood that. Maybe you've conceived of a relationship with Jesus as something that you're supposed to believe, a set of beliefs, a set of doctrines, a set of propositions. But that's really not how Jesus presented it. Jesus would say, follow me, come along, do what I do, or do what you are supposed to be doing. Do what you're designed to do in life. And that's what following Jesus gets you. You are the light of the world, but when you commit yourself to be the light of the world, what happens is that you light up your own life. You discover who you are, wherever you are, wherever you live. Um, and I hope that's a refreshing idea for you. Uh, for some of you, it might be an old idea. Um, some of you might be a new idea, but I think it's the idea that's really going to define our next season at Blue Water. I think we're going to get 90-second testimonies week in and week out about, well, here's what I did at the office. Here's what I did at the work site. Here's what I did at school this week. Here's what I did in court. God help you. Here's a touchdown dance for Jesus. Uh, because I was the light of the world. Uh, do you realize who you are? Is my question. 
Let's pray. You're the salt of the earth. You are the illuminators of your workplace. You are the guiding beacon for your family. And all of your brokenness, all of your disease or oppression or depression, it's you right now where you live and where you're at. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we accept the commission. Guide us, Lord, so that we might be um, what you have designed us to be. In Jesus' name.